Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Easy Conversations podcast, a podcast about having easy conversations. I'm your host, Furkan Dandia. In this week's episode, I'm really excited to welcome Travis Goodman. Travis is based in California and is a licensed marriage and family therapist. He has been practicing over the past nine years in both the hospital and private practice settings. He also has further expertise, training, and certification in attachment-focused EMDR, emotionally-focused couples therapy, and dialectical behavioral therapy. In this episode, Travis also shares his journey of becoming a therapist and why he is so passionate about wanting to help people. Travis then walks through the process of EMDR and what it entails, which is something I believe a lot of listeners can give value from, especially if they're interested in this modality of therapy, which is becoming more and more prominent. It's something I've used in the past and I found it to be very helpful. You can find Travis on various platforms, especially Instagram at Therapy for Dads. And if at the end, if you could leave a five-star review, I would truly appreciate it. Travis, welcome to the Easy Conversations podcast. Thank you for joining me. I'm super grateful for you to take the time to have this conversation with me today. And I'm just really excited to chat with you. Uh, I think we've spoken a couple of times now and I've thoroughly enjoyed our conversation. So so I'm excited for this one. But before we get started, uh, I want to give you an opportunity to quickly share something about yourself, what it is that you do, where you're located, just for the listeners to kind of get to know you. Sure, yeah, and and thanks again for having me on your Easy Conversations. I, I think it's such a great name, by the way. Um, and I appreciate you inviting me on to have a conversation, an easy conversation. Um, so I'm Travis Goodman. Um, I'm located down in Southern California in South Orange County, uh, married, Coming on about 12 years, have three kids, um, a five, a three, and a six-month-old. She's now six months, which is crazy. So we're just not getting out of the cave, I call it. Six months is always kind of light at the end of the tunnel of the newborn phase. Um, so that's good. So we're there, which is crazy. Yeah. She's six months. Um, and so by by night, you know, I'm a dad. Um, that takes a lot of time being a parent full-time. I mean, yeah. you're until they're asleep, you're doing stuff. And even when they're asleep, you're doing stuff. I feel like cleaning the house and putting things together and getting ready for the next day. But um, by day, my day job, I work as a licensed marriage and family therapist um, out in California. So that's my kind of my profession, if you will, out here. Yeah. So I've been doing that now for, gosh, been fully, fully licensed for, I want to say us six years fully licensed for six years but um cool. practicing for almost nine because that's postgraduate school we have to get three thousand hours so it's about two years of two and a half years it took me to get my license postgrad of but you're still doing therapy as yeah as you know right you're doing therapy but you have a supervisor who's kind of checking off on your your cases and case consultation and everything like that but you're still you're doing the work it's just someone's yep. kind of making sure that you're doing all right and so I guess with that, it's been about, you know, nine, well, what did I say? Six, like eight years, about eight, yeah. nine years. So cool. Yeah, cool. And uh, you also have your own 
podcast. You yes, sorry, talk I about did that. not mention that. Yes, I do have my own podcast, um, uh, my own Instagram, um, YouTube. So, but podcast is therapy for dads with the number four. Um, so therapy number four dads. It's also the Instagram handle, um, and I have a website therapyfordads.com. I also have a YouTube channel where I do a little more longer form content on mental health videos. If you just type in my name, Travis Goodman at YouTube, it'll, you'll find me. Um, and podcasts I've been doing for about a, just over a year. I did take a, a kind of a cheat year cause I took three months off when I had my daughter. So I, I started at May of last year in 2021. So, um, I hit the one year mark in May of this year, but you know, there's three months in there yeah. thing. Cause I was, I was taking care of the family. So it was kind of a, that's part of being a dad and <laughs> it's exactly. just priorities. Um, so we've been doing that. It's a lot of fun. And, um, you know, those that don't know, I actually just had you on my show. Uh, it's going to, for those that don't know, it is, we're doing this in the same night. So that's what we do <laughs> as dads. We just, we double, we double, we double dip and uh, <laughs> little well, you, you trade secret. Have let that out. Well, hey, it's out. <laughs> yeah, I, we could we could cut this, and they'll have no idea I even said it. No. That's the beautiful thing about post is you can cut it, and it, as if it never happened, it's like magic. Um, so uh, I had you on my show, and it was a great conversation. I was really appreciative of you talking, and um, and uh, I get to be on yours, and we get to do this and and share different conversations. So, um. It's fun. It's fun. And my favorite thing, I think, from running the podcast, actually, and has been meeting just incredible uh, men and women that have a heart and passion around kind of fatherhood and, and men's mental health. That's kind of like what my podcast has been focused around is kind of the intersection of mental health and fatherhood and men just kind of providing space for men to have a conversation, to share difficulties, to share things they've overcome, to kind of create that vulnerability in men to share about things they've gone through because i don't think there's enough spaces for men talking about these things mm -hmm. um which is how the podcast was birthed was really just trying to provide space for men to share because yeah. men often are not asked um you know going through infertility stuff with my wife and having friends go through like miscarriages and infertility issues often men aren't asked how they're doing um even by like healthcare professionals, it's just how's the mom doing, which is fine. It's not, it's not anti-mom, anti-support, but there's a theme here in general that men are just kind of in the background in generally speaking when it comes right. to these things, um, especially in fatherhood, you know, in, in post, you know, postnatal visits, um, mom, how you doing? How's the kid? Which is fine. Like those are good things. So it's, I don't want to yeah. take away from the support and care we need for mothers and children however comma there's men haven't experienced and they're going through things and are often just kind of expected to just perform be you know kind of fulfill the, some of the stereotypes and a lot of men are struggling so i wanted to provide a space for men um and then the ther the, the, the podcast has evolved slightly to also include kind of other experts and talking about maybe specific like kind of topical ideas i think men have gone through like mm -hmm. burnout uh, has been a topic we I had uh, my, actually my first female on who is a PA physician's assistant and we talked about burnout parental burnout and how it affects men and women and the differences there 
um, and some of the barriers men are facing with parental burnout within our society, at least in America, with like parental paid leave and things like that, and kind of just the expectations of men in our society um, and how that can promote burnout. Um, so it, it's kind of evolved since like day one, but I still bring on men to share these stories. I think they are needed and we need more of it to kind of just normalize just just talking about it. And yeah, which in turn, I think, encourages men to kind of feel encouraged to then one, get help themselves, say, wow, this guy's talking about it. Like, mm-hmm. I relate to this. Maybe I can get help and maybe I'm not the only one. It's kind of in a way kind of inception of, hey, they're hearing this stuff and maybe they start to hear it enough to say, okay, I, I can get help. I don't have to be afraid or get stuck. So that's kind of what the pod came yeah. from. Yeah, no, I, I like that because that's kind of the purpose of this podcast as well. And that's why you're here to have these yeah. conversations and normalize them because we need to be having more of them. And I agree with you when people hear uh, these types of conversations, they can relate and it gives them courage to either speak up or, or ask for help. So that's my goal. So thank yeah. you for sharing that. Thank you for doing the work you're doing. But uh I, I just wanted to understand, not only for myself, but the listeners, what made you choose this field and um, did you experiment along the way? Yeah. Um, so uh, I think when I, so my parents got separated when I was a senior, starting a senior year in high school. Um, and that kind of just shifted things, you know. Um mm-hmm for me just kind of out of the blue i had no idea we me and my brother it's like oh okay just kind of there was no nothing that there was no like they didn't fight there was nothing there's no signs that would have said this was happening it's like kind of it felt like i had a left field thinking back um you know they weren't yellers or screamers or fit there was nothing like that it was just kind of oh okay you're getting separated okay i remember i remember them pulling me into the living room standing and I remember just staying there and like I thought I was in trouble for something and that you know sometimes I don't know why but you know when you're a kid or a teen you think parents sometimes call you sometimes you get this feeling like did I do something and then you're like did I do something like what I and you're wrecking your brain like what did I do and I'm getting called in to, to have this conversation and sit down and it feels very formal so I, I knew something was up and then I was like okay you're separated um and then i didn't see my dad you know once they left it's like i didn't see him for almost a year that was weird my mom got depressed so it was my brother started acting out i was the oldest my brother was like we dealt with it very differently i became very much the the trend the dad like the calm one my brother got really angry and was like breaking crap all the time and Mm -hmm. doing stupid stuff at high school and you know like yeah just stuff i was like what do you do and so i became like his dad and we get fight we'd fight over it just it was just a hot mess yeah um and so that was just tough just senior of high school like just what is going on and then out, out post that i didn't really know what i wanted to do i thought i knew what i wanted to do and um so i went to junior college um which is not a bad thing but i think mm-hmm. some people can view it oh you go to junior college not university because I didn't know what I wanted to do. And so I went there to yeah. kind of try to take just classes. Like, I don't know. Um, and initially my dad, when I did talk to him again, you know, I would ask him like, I don't know what to do. He's like, well do math, you know, do math. It's like, okay. Cause he's like, you could always get a degree with math and engineering, right? There's always, <laughs> we always need more people in math and engineers, which there is some truth to that. I think, Yeah. I think he was trying his best to, to help provide for me in a way. And, um, but that was always like his, his thing. 
um, or join the military because he was ex-military. He was in the reserves. And so join the military, um, which I didn't want to do. Um, mm. And I started doing math. I was decent at it. Uh, it came naturally to me. Like it wasn't super difficult to do math. Um, I was always kind of in advanced math in high school and just kind of, you know, did calculus and all this stuff. So um, I just, my brain worked that way. And um, so I did that. And then long story short, my parents kind of were rocky for a while. And I was just kind of living my life in my early 20s. And um, <clears throat> I remember I moved to San Diego because uh, my, my dad was down there at the time. And my, my mom, my brother, where we were still up and where we, kind of where we grew up, but we all moved down. And I was planning on moving anyway because I had buddies that moved down there post high school. I was like, I, I just want to, I just want to change the scenery. And they live in San Diego. I visited them a few times. Like, hey, this is a cool, it's cool, it's cool. San Diego's great. It's gorgeous. It's you know, you're by the beach. It's they got a lot of good food. I want to go. But my mom and dad decided to kind of try their marriage out again. So I remember moving down there, and that was really awkward. <clears throat> uh, just the house was just like so, in, just just tense all the time. Um, and just kind of, I just kind of stayed out of the house and worked and was with my buddies. And, and then one year I moved out because like, I can't take the tension anymore. Like I, it was one Christmas. I'm like, this is just so weird. So I'm, I'm like, I have to move out because I just feel really low in this house. Just not good. Mm -hmm. um, I wouldn't say depressed, but definitely just heavy, you know, mm -hmm. feeling just the energy. Just like this is, I can't think. I'm just, just awkward. So I moved out and that was a, one of the best things. Like financially, I like you know, I had to start living again, I had to pay for things. So, you know, financially probably wasn't the best move, but I think holistically for me, it was the best move, mm -hmm. um, mentally, emotionally, socially, cause I just got away from that tension and I could like, Oh, I can breathe. <clears throat> Long story short, they did eventually divorce. So I was on a journey for math. Um, part of it was cause my dad said, so I didn't know what I want to do. I was at a university eventually and I decided ah, this is not for me. Um, I'm doing it, but I have no passion, no desire, like zero. Like I don't, I don't, I have zero passion to do any of the homework. I don't care. I'm doing it last minute. It's just, I, there was no drive for me to do it. So I stopped and I remember my dad being really upset, like didn't understand why I stopped. <clears throat> and I'm like, well, I, I'm not going, I'm not paying for, I'm not, I'm like, you're not even paying for school. So I, I'm paying and I'm not going to pay for a degree that I'm not going to use. Yeah. So I took about a year off, worked and kind of did just read and just different things and um, decided I actually did. So I, I actually studied theology, um, Christian theology. I found that fascinating. So yeah. I started doing that and loved it. It was great. I ate it up. I found it fascinating, interesting, um, read a ton of books and actually really became an avid reader at that point. Because in high school I read, but I wasn't avid. I just kind of. It just wasn't my thing, but I really started just reading for the first time, just philosophy and all these different books and, you know, <clears throat> ancient writers and from different religious backgrounds and just kind of, for whatever reason, that just kind of fascinated me. I, and I loved reading philosophy. It was like, wow, this is, you know, Plato, all the, you know, the greats like Plato and Socrates yeah. and all those classics. Like I just, they were just to me, like it just, my brain, like just, I loved it. So I did that. And then started a master's degree, and then my parents finally divorced, and I'm like, oh, and for whatever reason, I, um, I couldn't focus. It was weird. Um, 
it just hit me again. I was like, why is this hitting me? It's been like years of them on and off, and I just mm -hmm. kind of let it go. But when they finally said it's final, I was like, for whatever reason, it, it like it struck a chord, and I was like, man, I'm not okay. Mm -hmm. And so I stopped that degree, <clears throat> started seeing a therapist who I got a referral from a friend of mine, and um, just started doing that pretty much weekly. And really just, I paused school. I was working, I was working still, and then I was just doing that. Um, you know, doing friend stuff in life, but I, that, that was that became like my focus, yeah. and really started deep diving into who I was and my identity and my shame and you know stuff I struggled with and how I coped and how I was dealing with like my parents stuff and who I was and my role as a as a as the eldest son and and as a, as a kid and um, really what I wanted and. Um, kind of the toll it took on me emotionally with my family and my father and my mom and, and what they went through and, and uh, just kind of just really did everything. Just kind of took a deep dive, man, just went for it. Um, definitely some of the hardest stuff I've done and mm -hmm. definitely the most rewarding. And through that process, through my own therapy, through my own healing and restorative work of doing the stuff, of being on that end of the couch and being the one opening up and sharing and doing the work outside of therapy and, you know, going home and journaling and writing and doing all this stuff to kind of continue my work and mm -hmm. really reflect on why I do what I do and my motivations and my drives and all those things that we do as therapists now with our clients. I was that person. And, um, through that, I really realized, man, I really want to help. I really want to help people on this, on this level. Um, mm -hmm. and really, help them navigate some of that stuff that I went through um, and be a listening ear and guide along their way to help them find restoration and healing and peace and balance in their life. Um, yeah, so that's kind of, and then I went back and got a second degree in psychology and then got a master's in, you know, counseling um, and then, you know, the whole track licensure and, and became licensed. So that's kind of the, I guess, medium length of a story. I guess, to answer your question of how I became a therapist. Yeah, yeah, no, thank you for sharing. And as you can, as you can appreciate, I can relate to it on many yeah. aspects. Um, so we share that. So, mm -hmm. so that's amazing. So now, you know, you kind of used your own journey as a catalyst to want to help others. And mm -hmm. I think a lot of people experience that in life, you know, where they go through certain adversity and then they want to help others through that. And I think that's beautiful that you're doing that. Yeah. So why therapy for dads? So like anything, trying to find a handle, um, I was initially going to use my name, um, which, you know, isn't bad, but, you know, trying to think of something that would get people's attention. Um, and while, while my YouTube channel is my name, um, I was like, man, but I wanted to, I guess the reason why Therapy for Dads is I wanted really to help highlight dads, fathers, and kind of mm -hmm. mental health, which is really men, right? Um, but the next la layer of being a man is now fatherhood, is that mm -hmm. I think going back to kind of that, why I started my podcast was, one, I wanted dads to have space and men to have space to talk about the difficulties and just kind of normalizing therapy. And I use therapy in kind of really a generic, you know, people are going to have their own notion when they, when they hear the word therapy. 
it can mean an array of things to, to depending on who you're asking. Um, right. But I wanted that to kind of catch their ear and their thought process of, okay, therapy. And then they're going to have their preconceived notions, whatever it is that they're, they're projecting on the therapy, whether it's like talk therapy or like physical therapy. I mean, there's so many different types of therapies out there and then dads. Mm. Um, and so I wanted that to really highlight and kind of normalize mental health and fatherhood and be a face to that as well of one being a dad, being a man to say, Hey, this is just mental health. Mental wellness is well, mental health is just as important as everything else that men have like just our physical health or social health or intellectual health or relational health or spiritual health. Like these are all important factors and one is not greater or lesser than the other, but as equal. And I think just creating space and having another face and being a licensed therapist to kind of bring good information around some of the mental illness stuff. Like, okay, here's some things that I know a lot about mm -hmm. as well as the mental, just in generally talking about mental health and mental wellness but having that kind of background. Um, so that's really why therapy for dads is to really highlight men and fathers and to, to really be one of the, I think, other men that are doing this, of really trying to help normalize it for dads. Again, because I think dads tend to, you know, I think men in general, when it comes to th therapy and mental health, there's barriers. Then you yep. add being coming a father, there's just a whole other layer of barriers on top because now you just have less time for yourself. So now I got to sir, I got to be, I'm a dad. I got responsibilities. I, I'm, I don't have time, you know, and I don't have time to take care of myself, which is also yeah. why I started because I dealt with a lot of dads coming in my office and they had all the barriers of men, the, the classic stigmas of like, why well, don't want to be seen weak and a burden. But then being a dad, it's like, I got to provide, I got to do this and became this other layer of like more barriers and more difficulties got in the way of them taking care of themselves. And so mm -hmm. I think that's, that's why I really highlighted that. And, and of course I, I, I help anyone, but I really wanted to make a point to really highlight dads in mm -hmm. what I do, at least on the Instagram and, and, and the, and the podcast is really trying to bring it back to speaking to the dad experience around mental health mm -hmm. and fatherhood. Yeah, no, that's very cool. Very cool. And you've touched on it a few times the aspect of shame now hmm. that can apply to men and women equally but what yeah. what about shame when it comes to men and you you and i chatted about it offline too but as a therapist because i haven't really asked even the therapists i've had as guests on the podcast like being on the other side what do you typically see from the men that come to see you when it pertains to shame and, and perhaps even when they take on the role of fathers. Hmm. Yeah. So a lot of the narratives <clears throat> and messages I hear, um, a lot of like when I, when I get to the core of some of their, their shame messages, right. Um, you know, first we probably should define shame for your listeners, right? Um, guilt and shame, easy way to do this. Right. Um, unless you've defined it already. Have you defined it already to your listeners? Uh, no. Shame's no. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Go for so it. guilt and shame, easy way, uh, just to make it simple, right? Guilt is, um, I failed at something. Shame is I'm a failure. Um, right. That, that's the difference. One is about, a, about something, a behavior, something I didn't accomplish or, I wasn't able to do versus a self, a negative prescription of self, uh, how you see yourself. 
So it's not that I made a mistake. It's I am a mistake. It's not that, you know, I, I didn't do enough to, you know, to study versus I am not enough that, you know, very, mm. and that changes everything, right? Because one, you could fix like easily. Okay, well, if I didn't study enough, what do I need to do to study enough for the next test? Mm -hmm. But if I'm just not, if I'm at my core, not enough, well, I can't fix that. Like that's just, yeah. that becomes truth quotes. I'm putting that in quotes, those who are listening. Of course. Um, that becomes this truth, this fact, I mean, the reality is it's not, but it becomes this truth. And so everything becomes this lens. We see the world through this lens of shame. Like mm -hmm. I'm a failure, I'm not enough, I'm unlovable, you know? And so this, everything gets filtered through this lens. And so if that's the truth of how I see myself, then therefore everything is kind of encased or, uh, uh over, you know, shadowed by this shame message. And so a lot mm -hmm. of men and fathers I deal with, a lot of them struggle with feeling like a failure as a father. They're not, I'm not enough. Um, you know, I'm failing my kids, therefore I can't, you know, I'm a failure. And so they get stuck in this kind of spiral. Um, and then, you know, how they cope with it is they tend to isolate. They tend to, you know, just work more or, or, uh, you, you know, uh, they, or they turn to other negative things like drinking or, or pornography or something to kind of numb or just avoid or, or, you know, work, you know, workaholic, they work mm -hmm. 12 hour days and try to like provide more. And, and uh, a lot of them, a lot of the men, and, and I'm generalizing a lot of the fathers I work with when they come in, you know, they they don't have really good, deep, vulnerable, intimate relationships for various reasons. Um, they tend to feel like I don't want to be a burden. So I don't talk to my spouse about it especially if they're mm -hmm. married, I don't talk to my spouse. I don't want my spouse to know, um, you know, and then if they're a single dad, that's a distant, you know, they tend to be more isolated. I don't have anyone or I have buddies that I, you know, joke around with, but I wouldn't tell them how I feel. Mm -hmm. Um, so there's a lot of shame even of, of being seen as perceived of being weak or struggling. Cause then that comes in with all the, you know, the, the pretty typical stigmas of masculinity in men and where men are afraid of being seen and being perceived as weak and not having it all together. Mm -hmm. Um, and so they, they keep it hidden and then, well, as you know, and I know it just, that just tends to make things worse. It tends to perpetuate the shame message and, and more the the hurt and the pain and the, the unhealthy coping. It just, it just kind of builds this pressure. And then eventually what tends yeah. to happen until they get help is that pressure. It, it, uh, it gets to a point, we all have a breaking point, And then once we hit that, it, something happens. Yeah. Um, and it tends, it tends to not come out in very healthy, productive ways, typically. Mm -hmm. Um, and yeah. that's usually what I've seen. So yeah, that's, that's what I'm seeing. And that's, that's why I want to help men and like, Hey, let's just, let's, let's help you out. Let's normalize mm -hmm. this help and realize it's actually very manly, very strong to, to seek out support and connection yeah. and vulnerability. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I'm glad you mentioned the whole aspect of not enough because i think that's the root of the shame is that mm. narrative around i'm not enough and and then to your point that becomes our truth because mm -hmm. we believe it and and uh, you know the antidote to shame vulnerability is not easy either because there's that aspect of weakness and and again accepting failure is not something that's been role modeled for us as men mm. and right it's not something we grew up with right you didn't see the 
we all as as boys growing up we all had role models whether it was athletes or celebrities or movie actors and and you didn't see them fail right like i mean you only celebrated their successes um Mm -hmm. so so that factors in too because that's how we were programmed yeah 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 you're right absolutely so one of the other things i did want to cover with you and and for personal reasons as well but uh emdr (laughs) yep (laughs) i'm not going to seek therapy on this call but uh so eye movement desensitization reprocessing did i get that right yeah that's a mouthful it is it is so emdr (laughs) (laughs) and uh i'll just give some context here but i i think a huge fundamental shift for me and my healing was starting emdr treatment and Mm. uh, how it enabled me to not only dig deep into some of the trauma i had carried uh, as a Mm into my adult life from childhood but it also gave me an opportunity to gain a different perspective on that trauma i was able to Mm. see it from the lens of the people that were involved and have forgiveness and compassion for myself but also have compassion for the people that were involved in and it also allowed me to have some difficult conversations around forgiveness and all that jazz so so for me emdr has been powerful as i mentioned but i also want to give listeners an idea of what that treatment is and then also get your perspective on why it can be so powerful Hmm. yeah so and and before you get into that again just for context you are currently uh, learning to specialize in this form of treatment. Right. Yeah. So I could give a quick snapshot of what that looks like. Um, so I'm, so I was trained through Parnell Institute, which there's two big bodies that, um, as far as like the, the gold standard, as far as being trained, there's other like informal trainings, which I would never do like through PESI, um, which I just want to do. Um, but the main one is EMDRIA. So emdria.org is the main kind of, you know, certifying body of those being certified in EMDR. And, you know, it was, it's been around for what, I think 40 something years. And it was discovered by Francine Shapiro by accident. That's the history. And you could, you know, feel free to Google, Google this mm-hmm. stuff. Um, and you could, you could read about it and watch some sort of videos. But, uh, but I, I went through Parnell Institute, Laurel Parnell, who actually worked with Francine Shapiro um, before she passed. And Francine Shapiro really liked the work that Laurel Parnell was doing. So what Parnell did differently or what she added to the standard EMDR protocol was the science of attachment lens. So it's actually, I'm trained in attachment focused EMDR. So we add in that whole attachment cause I'm big on attachment science. And that's a big thing I do with pretty much every single one of my clients. I look back at their attachment style with their attachment to their caregivers and parents. Cause I firmly believe that's a big proponent of how we then seek out connection in adulthood for better, mm-hmm. or for worse. 
and to heal some of those attachment wounds because we can heal in adults, you know, in, in healthy relationships or within therapeutic relationships, we can heal with, you know, um, you know, a positive, corrective emotional experience, right? We can, we can have these, you know, we can heal these wounds. And so I love that part, which is why I went down the path of going the Parnell route, which, you know, people, it's two different paths. They're both EMDR, but Parnell again added this lens and some other modifications to the, the, the standard protocol. So, mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> I, I liked that, and I had some people who trained before and, and on both, and I'm like, ah, I like the attachment stuff. I think that's pretty cool, so I'm going to go that route. So basic training. <clears throat> it sounds basic, but it's not. So basic training is a lot. It, it's three three-day weekends, eight hours, uh, plus 10 hours of consultation in between the second and third weekend, and this is over a six-month period. So you have the first two weekends pretty much back-to-back, -back. so it's mm -hmm. six straight days of eight hours of live training, you know, you're practicing, there's, you know, experts, certified ex, you know, EMDR trainers there, uh, you know, they're, they're going through the model, the history, you're practicing, the, you're actually practicing on each other, the basics, you kind of get a feel for what it feels like in session. Um, and then between the second and third weekend, it, it's about a six month period, you, you have 10 weeks of, or 10 hours, which is about 10 weeks of mm -hmm. consultation with a certified trainer in a group setting where you're kind of going over cases. You have one, they have you really focus on a case to really go through the phases of EMDR and then get feedback and to kind of practice. So that's basic training. So that's, uh, what's the math? 80 something hours mm -hmm. just to have basic training. So it's not like you took an hour class and you're now certified. It doesn't work that yeah. way. It's yeah. very intense. And I'm actually on my way of getting certified, and, and now I'm in the process of, of certification. That could, that, that could take, depending on the person, minimum another year. And you're meeting minimum with a certified trainer. Uh, they call them consultants for about, tw I think, minimum 25 hours wow. um, of consultation. Minimum. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's like there's minimum standards, and then often what happens is that consultant will say they'll – think you're ready or you know you need more time so there's there's yeah. a minimum and there's other some other tr there are the things we have to do as well the tra some other trainings and some other things along the way um a long consultation that they require so it's very rigorous and and you know if you meet someone who's fully certified well i'm not fully certified but if it's a fully you kind of know they've done significant work okay. and training to, to to be fully certified so which yeah. i appreciate the certification process for some of these kind of fields because you know if someone's fully certified they really have spent a lot of hours and time perfecting their craft within this particular modality mm -hmm. and for me emdr is a tool that i it's one of those tools i wish i had right away at the same time it's something that maybe i i did some therapy around trauma before and some other not that i did bad work but it's some work i did is like it's like sometimes i was EMDR is a power tool. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I'll put it that way. Yeah. It's like having a, you know, it's a having a power tool versus a handheld tool. Yeah. And um, do you b feel that, you know, at least in my experience, it was fairly intense, but I also had to get to a certain point in my oh, yeah. journey of therapy to be able to go that deep. Do you feel that's the case with most people? Oh yeah, totally. So part of part of EMDR too, prepping, prepping and assessment is incredibly important before we jump into EMDR because doing phase four, phase four is you know eight phases of EMDR. Phase four is when we desensitize, so and we're using bilateral stimulation to help. 
um, which helps the brain reprocess quickly, more efficiently, and, and helps the neural pathways. Because really, within an EMDR, those who don't know, really the brain is doing the predominant work. The brain is healing itself. Because what happens is with trauma, traumatic memories, whether it's capital T traumas, lowercase t traumas, you know, capital T traumas are those life-threatening traumatic memories we think of of classic PTSD. You know, I was almost killed. I was shot. I was, you know, sexually assaulted. You know, I, you know, my buddy at war got blown up in front of me. You know, I almost died. That's what we think. That's capital T trauma, life-threatening events. Then we have lowercase t traumas, which are can be, in some cases, just as negatively impactful on our mind, body, soul as those capital T traumas. And those could be things like continued neglect, emotional neglect, emotional abuse, you know, ongoing being in stressful situations over time, being around maybe substance abuse in a family and, you know, you're, or maybe experiencing domestic violence in your home where it didn't occur to you, but you witnessed it, kind of that vicarious trauma. You know, there's a lot of things that can cause these lowercase c traumas. Going through maybe a really tumultuous divorce, right? Things can happen. Um, maybe being shut down emotionally over and over and over again by your parents or caregivers where you couldn't emote or maybe were yelled at or told you were dumb, you know, or, ba you know, things. I'm thinking of men, for example, maybe you were told you're a baby or a wuss for having feelings and you can't cry. And so, you know, you're hearing that over and over and over again. Now, that's not life-threatening, but that can, for some people, that can be very traumatic. And trauma, mm -hmm. by Dan Siegel said this, trauma, I love this version of trauma because you could have 10 people. And I want... Everyone hear this. You could have 10 people experience the same event. Let's say a life-threatening event. Not all 10 people are going to come out with full-blown trauma and PTSD. Mm -hmm. You could have three people come out with full-blown PTSD. You could have maybe two people come out with like panic attacks, maybe two people depressed, and like the other just kind of like, oh, it happened, it was hard, but I'm okay. Yeah. Because trauma is partly determined upon the person. And not that, not because you're weak. So trauma is really, and Dan Siegel said this, who's one of the experts in trauma, along with like Bessel van der Kolk, which are really good yeah. people who read. Body Keeps the Score is a great book on this exact topic. A little intense of a book, but great book. Um, but Dan Siegel said, really, trauma is any time there's an event that, and I'm paraphrasing him here, um, it's any time an event surpasses an individual's current set of coping strategies as well as it overwhelms their capacity to cope in that moment. Yeah. yeah. And that causes a traumatic event. Yeah. Because we all have our, our, current capa our current capacity of coping and regulating ourselves. So it's anything that kind of surpasses that is like a traumatic event in our mind, yeah. body, soul. Right. And so and, that's, and that's, that's the best way to describe it. Yeah, and to your point, um, like you said, it affects everyone differently, even if it's a similar mm -hmm. incident or situation. A lot of that's also right. determined by our temperament, right, and our ability to cope, as you mentioned. So, right. So, right. very important points. Um, so, yeah. That's continue. the window of tolerance, right? Remember the yeah. window of tolerance? Yes. Yeah. So, window of tolerance. We all have different windows. It's that window of tolerance of meaning what we can, our level of resiliency, and there's different things that go into our certain window meaning that's kind of our current capacity to deal with life and stress um like the ups and downs of life and we all have different ranges for various reasons temperament personality past experiences mm -hmm. past traumatic event i mean there's so many things that contribute to like maybe having us have a smaller window or a bigger window right 
And so what we do know is with early childhood trauma, it tends to shrink our window. So we're e more easily traumatized as we get older because our window is smaller. Our window of tolerance of what we can mentally, physiologically tolerate is sh shrunk. And so, and some people are just more susceptible for, for whatever reason, genetically, there's different things that can go into that. And it's not yeah. that the person's weak or not strong. Um, that's not anything of what it means. It's just, just how our brains work. So, um, so all to say, going back to what we said with the EMDR, I'm, I'm in the middle of the certification process and it's a power tool. And to answer your question coming back was we have to do prep work because it is so traumatizing. Um, because sometimes we are re-traumatized when we're in the kind of post after the event, because what we're doing is we're focusing on a particular event and you're thinking of, you know, the, the thing we focus on is what is the, what image represents the most disturbing part of the event? Right. You know, however, what I like about EMDR is we don't have to talk about every detail. That's one thing I like about EMDR where some of the trauma therapies, they really, they want you to talk about every nitty gritty detail, right? And just kind of repeat that. But in, in EMDR, we kind of get these snapshots and it's your brain kind of flashing through and we use bilateral stimulation to help the, the client move to get unstuck because often we're stuck and we're disintegrated. Our mind, body, soul are disintegrated. We're kind of stuck in time and are kind of our amygdala and we're stuck in that fight flight response. And so we, we use these techniques to help move, but it can be really traumatizing because now we're feeling all this stuff all of a sudden that we haven't felt and we're really in it and we're kind of engaging in it. And so we really have to do, before we get to that phase, we really have to what we call resourcing people to make sure they can regulate themselves somewhat efficiently because what can happen is after a session of desensitizing, you could have nightmares, you could have more memories can pop up because memories get buried. It's like, mm -hmm. it's like a, they get buried underneath another memory and you, you remove that memory and all of a sudden it's like, you know, a funnel that starts up. Yeah, it's like there's the Pandora's box, right? So we yeah. want to make sure people can regulate themselves in between sessions. And we do various things to do that. We actually do something called resource tapping. We do resourcing, kind of doing a calm, peaceful place. I'm, I'm not sure if you did that with your therapist. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly yeah. what I did. Yeah, which is a very much, a lot of people do that in yoga and meditation, which is kind of like you're imagining a very calm, peaceful place. But we resource tap that in. You know, we want to make sure we strengthen that connection within the neural pathway of the brain. So you can go there. We have, you know, I have my clients practice that daily. I do other breathing techniques. I do other mindset techniques, other types of resourcing, maybe around certain fit, you know, nurturing figures, protective figures, wise figures to currently bolster kind of our internal ego state. Cause part of it is really what we're trying to do is boost, um, our internal ego strengthening and affect regulation to help stress reduction, which is very important because a lot of us come in who are first coming into MDR, they can't do that. So I don't jump in and start processing trauma because I'll right. re-traumatize them. And that will be, will have an adverse effect. So I want to, I really want the first few phases are so important. It's getting, understanding the history. How are they doing? What are they doing to currently cope? Like if they're using drugs and alcohol to cope, like I got to get them not to do that because that's also going to impede the efficacy of EMZR. If they're numb all the time, if they're drunk or they're high, like their, their brain won't heal. <laughs> I got to get them sober. I got to get them. You know, in some cases, some people, if they're depressed, I got to get them on antidepressants so they can like, actually feel if they're numb. Like, I got to, we got to get them to a place where they're somewhat stable, you know, before mm -hmm. we jump into like this processing. Because for some, it could really bring up all this stuff and really dysregulate someone. So I got to make sure when someone's safe. So for some people who come into EMDR, they're like, I just want to do EMDR. Like, yes, 
I'm excited. I love that you're excited about EMDR. I love that you, you know, read about this and saw it, you know, broadcast on the internet. But there's some work we got to do first. We don't just start doing this stuff. And some people are like, well, I want to do it. I'm like, well, we are doing it. You know, we're not desensitizing right now, but I got to do some other work with you before I feel comfortable getting there. <laughs> we, we have to do it appropriately because yeah. there is a process to this. Because it's about, it's about client safety at the end of the day. The whole, our yeah. goal as therapists is client safety. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's number one. Yeah, no, for sure, for sure. And and then I guess for listeners, if you don't mind quickly going over the process, like I completely appreciate the prep work. But as you mentioned earlier, you know, you work with the client to get the snapshots. And then and then what happens? So you work with the show. Yeah, so the first few phases, so it's eight phases, right? So phase one is kind of the history taking kind of who are you? Um, you know, what's bringing you, what's the full history from, and at least in an attachment, and I think they do it in regular, but at least in my perspective, I go back to childhood and look at, you know, elementary school, junior high, depending on the age, but elementary school, junior high, high mm -hmm. school, college, and I go back to relationship with their folks, and do they have good social relationships, did they get into drugs, like, how did they cope in childhood and adolescence, kind of really going through kind of these snapshots and their lifespan to get a good sense of who they are. And that's number one. And, and part of the prepping phase is that resourcing, you know, calm place, safe place, you know, nurturing figures, wise figures, protective, kind of building the ego strength and, you know, affect regulation to really prep them. And for some people, actually, they get it. For some people, just the resourcing for some is just I've had some people like that. That was that was powerful for them. And, and that was enough. Mm -hmm. Like they're like, oh, I got this. Like it's almost like they needed to realize that they have it within themselves because part of it is is what we're doing without them knowing it is we're, we're tapping into that person's own strength that they actually already possess but they don't know it mm -hmm. <laughs> like it's there it's like we're just unlocking it with them and helping their brain make the connection um, yeah because what was happens with trauma was it was it that was your yeah. experience yeah yeah it's powerful right oh absolutely yeah that changed everything once i made that connection yeah and it's amazing what tapping does. Or did you do? Did you like the? Did you do the eye movement? Did you do lights? Did you do tapping? What'd you do? Uh, I did the eye movement. Okay, you did this. Did you do this or did you do the light bar? Did they have the light bar no, for you? No, just this. The side. They to did side. the standard. Okay. Yeah. Um. So we, we could even talk about different uh, forms of uh, bilateral stimulation later, but um, but resource tapping is powerful. Um. And again, like you, for some people, that can be. That could just that could change everything because part of what happens with trauma is that part of your brain, the amygdala, the right part of the brain is not bound by time. It's it's in the emotional state, and so that's why we can be re-triggered so easily where we're feeling it again. Yeah, because we're we're disconnected from our whole being, the left side of our brain, our body, everything's kind of all over the place. But resource tapping can already begin to reintegrate everything, and when we do that, we realize, oh, I'm actually okay. Yeah, that's part of what happens. That part of our brain, that part of our tra traumatic memory, is unprocessed, and we're kind of stuck in that place, that time. And resourcing for some people just unlocks it, and so that's part of assessment, which is incredibly important. Like all the in initial work is incredibly, incredibly important. Um, we cannot skip it. And then there's the assessment, which is phase three, and assessment is really assessing kind of the what we call targets. And targets are really, what are the main events? What are the main distressing events that you're coming in to resolve? Like, is it a rape? Is it a, you know, were you physically abused? Was it, was it a tumultuous divorce that you can't 
you know, that you're stuck on. What, what are the targets and having a target map, kind of the first and the worst? What are the earliest memories kind of building kind of a timeline with the individual to kind of figure out what are those memories that we want to target with desensitization, which is phase four. So once we have a good assessment, once we have a good history, we have a good resourcing, we have good prep and assessment, we then move into a, a classic EMDR session, which is a desensitizing session, which is really what we do. We, we do phase four all the way up to five, six, seven, phase seven in one session. So four to seven is kind of all in one. We do it all in one session. So phase four is when we desensitize, we use, we have a target, you know, we use bilateral stimulation, which that's part of why that's important. It helps unlock the brain, mm -hmm. you know, helps left, right brain connection. And we found and discovered some, any form of bilateral stimulation, eye movements is, is the gold standard. But we have discovered over the almost 50 years of research that other forms of bilateral stimulation have a very similar effect, like, you know, tapping, you know, uh, you know, they, we use tappers where they kind of hold these like uh, little, you know, um, handles that vibrate back and forth. People, some people do audio back and forth, left, right, left, right. Um, so, cause what we're doing is it's, it's often similar to rapid eye movement we're sleeping is that our brain, it's helps our brain process it get unstuck. And so Francine Shapiro discovered this, that for whatever reason, these vets that she was working with, um, it accelerated the traumatic healing. And, and since we now know more about the brain, I've done research to see, oh yeah, what we're doing is it's very similar to rapid eye movement, which helps our brain process quickly, mm -hmm. helps us get unstuck and move and desensitize, meaning we're reducing the distress to the event. Right. And we do something called a SUD scale, right? Subjective mm -hmm. units of disturbance. That's so, it sounds so formal, but it's really how, how disturbing is this for you now as we're kind of processing and the goal is to get it down to a one or a zero where it becomes this kind of neutral, it's no longer charged that we say. And once we get to that point within phase four, we then move on to phase five where we then install, we install the, uh, what we call a positive now belief that we know about ourselves or positive cognition because part of what's happening is we're stuck in our past we often have a negative belief about ourselves or some negative you know view in the trauma like i was weak or i deserved it something where it's definitely not positive and when we reduce that we then often what comes to light is some positive belief like i'm okay i made it i'm safe if i'm i am strong like we, we, our brains start to see the reality versus kind right. of the, the, the skewedness. And so then we install that meaning we highlight it. And we also use back and forth bilateral stimulation to kind of strengthen that because bilateral stimulation not only reduces disturbance to negative events, it also helps our brain strengthen. It's helping our neural pathway connect faster. It's, this is all very scientific. It's all very fascinating. Yeah. And it kind of feels it like is. a Jedi mind trick. If I'm honest, it's like, in fact, I've had people tell me, it's like, did you Jedi mind trick me? I'm like, kind of. I mean, that's a good way to describe it. I mean, there is some yeah. science behind it, but it kind of feels like magic. I've had people say, "It's did you do magic on me? Like, if, it doesn't bother me anymore. It's bothered me for like 15 years, and yeah. it just, it's just not there. You don't. Rem it's not like you don't, you don't forget the memory. It's not brainwashing. It's just you think right. of it, and it's almost like how I describe it. It's like you had a wound that was gaping, and it just scarred over for the first time. So you remember it, but it's not oozing and painful anymore. It's like, right. oh, the scar's there. Yeah, and it, I mean, and it makes sense, right, based on everything you've explained. Like, yeah, when the amyg amygdala takes over, our primal response is fight or flight or freeze. Right. And, and then yeah. basically with the tapping and the bilateral movement, as you've explained, we're getting 
our prefrontal cortex activated right. and that's how we're rationalizing right. everything and, and making sense right. of it and that's yeah, why it's so exactly. important to have those positive um but yeah i guess you could look at it as a trick or just utilizing the the right parts of our brain <laughs> yeah i th that that's like the that's the that's the layman i mean because them it feels like a trick you yeah. know if you if you be on the other end because i know as a, as a therapist like oh that's what i'm doing to the brain and that's what's happening but the person going through it it's just like wait what why why yeah. how is this it, how is this working you know yeah. especially because they've often been stuck in the thing for years um and you know so once we get through installing we then do what's called a body scan mm. after we install like the new belief right and body scan is phase is phase uh, six and that's important because sometimes there's still residual stuff left in our body because our body you know has memory and we'll yeah. still store some stuff and so we have them scan and if there's something left over some sensation we we you know is it a, what kind of is it a positive or is it disturbing if it's positive we kind of oh great let's strengthen that if it's disturbing we might need to do a little more work meaning there's something else still there um and we kind of clear that out and then we go to kind of closure um which would be then phase seven we kind of wrap up the session and then phase eight is the next session we reevaluate because this is what can happen when we end a session um, I've even had this where sometimes, and this is so EMDR is not always clean every session. We don't always get someone's disturbance down to a one or a zero mm -hmm. with a memory. Sometimes we get them down, it's maybe it starts at an eight, we get them down to like a six, and that's the best we can do in that session. So we kind of button it up, and then the next session, we're like, we're going to start here next time. And what can happen yeah. sometimes is within the week, they come back and it's like, oh, it's, it, I don't know, it just feels less now. It, and it's not, it's like a two now. And because what's happening is it's, it's almost like the brain got unstuck a little bit and then continued the healing work in between sessions. It's like it, it's still healing because it was stuck and now it's starting to move like on its own. Mm -hmm. And part of what we do too, within that phase in between sessions, like, Hey, keep a journal. You might have new insights, new memories, new dreams, new, new, new things may come up for you. Write them down. Because right. we know that the the brain it just it doesn't stop healing it's always moving and what we did we just kind of got it out of the mud a bit and now it's starting to kind of roll, so some things yeah. can still work in between sessions and some people have epiphanies afterwards and then they it's like their brain just continues healing so all we're doing is aiding the brain with these scientific techniques to help it get unstuck and help like yeah. you said get out of the amygdalin response help reintegrate with the prefrontal cortex and the hippocampus reintegrate with our body right and our cognition we're, we're really hitting every part of ourself our left right brain our body our you know our, our amygdala response and co helping calm which is why we resource you know we're really kind of hitting everything within emdr and that's why yeah. i love it i love it because it's a it's a very powerful tool and it, it is a tool it's a tool right um right and it's very very powerful and yeah. But we really got to do the work to prep people in order to to engage it to make sure they're safe because again that's going back to that it's vitally important that we really prep people um correctly to do the work so we, they can continue to heal um yeah it, it, it's it's a tool that i wish i had early on but you know it's one of those things that's part of my journey and i did other things that got me to where i go and i finally did emdr and i'm loving it and it's like yeah i you know, it's fun. I could use it pretty much with most people, even like a, even with resourcing. I do it. With, I pretty yeah. much resource with everybody now because I'm like, hey, it's so powerful. It's like, 
it's just a resource. I mean, it's it's great. Yeah. And um, on top of all the other techniques I do, so EMDR is great. And if you get a chance to do it, it's find a good therapist. Um, again, not everyone needs EMDR. I, I want to say not everyone has to have it. Right. Um, but for those who do, it, it's a powerful therapeutic. And there are other good therapeutics out there. Other people that are trained in different types of trauma therapy. EMDR is not the only one. Um, there are other ones out there. I just I gravitated towards it primarily because of the lower level of disturbance with people. Like you still get disturbed sometimes, but um, I don't have to fully re-traumatize and go over everything because there's other again other modalities like that kind of cognitive one. You know, I'm thinking what's the what's the cognitive trauma the therapy, therapy where you're kind of yeah, and it's but you're like you're like you're really like writing every nitty gritty detail, and I'm like I don't I don't know if believe in that version i feel yeah. like it just is more dramatic than helpful and you know and that's why i love emdr is we just need we need snippets that activate the brain and the body and then we just kind of go so we don't which i like is we don't have to fully go over every detail because the brain already knows it's there <laughs> like the right. body knows it so we don't need to kind of fully get you to get discombobulated it's like let me get the what are the main points and the body the, the brain knows it, it exists right. um like even talking about it it's like you, you already activated that memory even thinking about it. It's like, oh, it's there. I don't need to have you explain every detail. So which which is what I like about it. Um, is that yeah. it's, I feel like the it's I feel like it's more client centered in a way, I think. A little I don't know. That's my thought. I, my perspective. I agree. I I found it to be powerful and I did find the insight where I was able to reprocess things a lot easier, as you mentioned. But I guess in between sessions there's also the risk of as you mentioned, you could take the client from eight to a six and they can come back as a two, but there's also the risk it that it could go the other way because you're uncovering mm -hmm. so many things, right? Oh, a hundred percent. Yeah. Oh, it could totally get more because then you're now they're thinking of like five other things. Um, or what can happen is that memory, they didn't realize there was some other earlier memory that was more traumatic. You know, it's like the, we have like, think of like memories of like channels. You know, and sometimes we drop into a channel and it, it goes way down and we're like, oh, there's something here. Yeah. Um, which is why assessment is so important in history taking because we want to we don't want to be blind. We try not to be blindsided. We really want to know everything. So if something does come up, we're aware of it. Yeah. Now, that's not always the case. Sometimes the client forgets something and then we drop in. I mean, we, we still have techniques to get out of it, but sometimes that could be very traumatic because it's like all yeah. of a sudden it's like, boom, it just hits them and they're like, they're in it. And right. which is why we want to really be aware. But yeah, there are times when people can feel more, which is why we do preparation and resourcing because it's to help them in case they get more disturbed or more stressed so they can take care of themselves, you know, through right. different techniques, calm, peaceful yeah. place, meditation, exercise good eating you know we we kind of really make sure that they have the skills and they feel confident to use them so they can regulate especially if things go up in between sessions because yeah. that, that goes again and back to the first three phases of emdr they're vitally important because we know it can increase the disturbance in between sessions in fact a lot of times it does people can have nightmares especially if there's complex ptsd yeah. especially if there's a lot of stuff um, that's where I tend to see it. People who don't have a lot of comp, if it's like a one, a single incident, I tend to not see that, at least in my experience so, so far. Yeah. Um, yeah. but when there's like, especially like early childhood, physical, sexual abuse or things like that, when there's more complex trauma, um, 
at least the first few sessions, I tend to see sometimes the increase in disturbance for a few a few sessions because there's a lot of layers and the brain's kind of trying to keep up with all this stuff. Yeah. Um, again, this is kind of anecdotal, um, you know, experiential evidence for that I've seen. Uh, but I do think some of the research does speak to that as well from what I've read. Um, some of the, yeah. the, the readings I've read from Shapiro as well as uh, uh, Parnell have kind of mentioned that. So, um, yeah. Cool. No, thank you for sharing all that. That was very, very helpful, and I'm sure <laughs> listeners will get a lot out, out of it too. But, uh, yeah, no, and, and, you know, I'm being mindful of time here, so – how can people reach you? I know you talked about your your handle on social media, you, your YouTube channel, but I just want to reiterate that for listeners, and I'll definitely be sharing all of it on on the show notes as well as putting it out on Instagram. But yeah, yeah. So again, um, you know, the, the website if you want to go every everywhere is therapy for dads. Therapy with the number four dads dot com. That's the Instagram handle. That's the podcast show um, on YouTube. If you just type in Travis Goodman, um, that's the best way. Um, but again, one stop shop is just the website. Um, go to you click on um, the, the links. It'll take you anywhere you want to go. Um, so yeah, check me out um, again. I'm a therapist in California. So if you want to do therapy, I, I can't do that. If you're outside of California, it's a weird law. Just FYI. I've had some people reach out to me. I'm like, I'd love to, but there's, there are rules. I can't do therapy across state borders or countries. Um, it's just how our license works currently. One day maybe that'll change to, to open it up, but that's just as a little small FYI. Now I can do coaching, but I can't do therapy. So I can't yeah. do EMDR with you <laughs> unless you're in California. There's very clear laws about that. So, yeah. 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 Well, no, thank you for sharing that, Travis. And thank you for coming on the podcast uh, sharing your story and, and walking us through the process of EMDR. That was very, very helpful. Yeah, no, thank you. I mean, yeah, I'm excited about it. So blessings to your, to you and to your, um, your listeners. And hopefully they do find this helpful. Hopefully it wasn't too, I don't know, uh, educational or (laughs) too, too classy. I don't know. Sometimes I feel like it could be over the head, but no, it was great. I think it was great to walk through it. I've mentioned EMDR many times on the podcast, and mm-hmm. I'm sure people have heard about it otherwise too. So it was it was very beneficial. Oh, great, great. Well, thanks for having me on. You're welcome. Thank you for tuning in to another episode. As always, please subscribe to the podcast if you enjoy the episodes, or leave a comment in the comment section. I always love hearing from you. Thank you again and until next week.